0: project herpetoculture number three Uh, our guest is the one and only ever stoic Ron St. Pierre Ron thank you very much man for coming to hang out and talk with us man anytime guys um so uh Roy and I were talking a little bit before the show and we were talking a little bit about um some of the stuff we want to talk with you about and uh uh we both kind of decided on this one question to maybe try to start the whole conversation off um Roy would you mind yeah,
1: sure. So um, one thing that I am often thinking about with herpetoculture is just how we're always kind of building on um, the keepers that have come before us. And um, well, I, ideally we should be doing that. And we actually do too little of that a lot of the time in herpetoculture. But um, the question that kind of came to mind was, was who are the keepers that have um, inspired or informed your practice of herpetoculture over, over the years? It's a good one. Um, I mean,
2: you know, I'm I'm sorry, I'm 53. So I grew up in the 70s and 80s and you know, going to the library and reading like the Raymond Dittmar books and uh, you know, reptiles of the world, stuff like that. So I consumed every bit of literature that I could on the on the subject from about the time I was about 10 years old, a lot of TFH books and and stuff like that um but it really so what really kicked my ass actually was the vivarium magazine once i got that that was just a total mindfuck because here is all these you know that was like that magazine came out at the point where herpeticulture really became a thing. It was like, okay, this is possible. There are all these people that have been doing it for a decade or two decades by that point. Um and it, it was, it was still very much in its infancy, but it had its players, people like, you know, Pete Call and Brian Bob Clark and all those guys. But it but really the one person I that I could say that really changed and and sort of um left me with a a model um, that I still use to this day is Philippe de Beaujolais because his his articles were much more about um, how to think, you know, critical thinking. Look, at, take a look at these things. Look where they come from in the wild. Look for ways to to not 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 necessarily mimic that, but to accommodate the important criteria that they need to survive and, and do well in captivity while at the same time, you know, finding realistic ways to ac- to achieve that. And, uh, you know, and he had this whole thing, you know, about about thinking about what you're doing, you know, putting a lot of thought into it, a lot of care into it. So that, you know, I was, I was like 19 or 20, I think, when that first um, magazine came out. And that was right at the point where I was really kind of transitioning from because I dropped out of school when I was 16 and I was a commercial collector in Miami. So I went out every day and caught night and cre- Puerto Rican crested anoles, all these inter, uh, non-native species that were in abundance there. And then I used to sell them to all the Miami wholesalers. There was a lot of reptile dealers where I grew up. They were literally all around me. So um, I would. So that's what I did. Um And then uh, I was making a living and I also had like a little, uh, you know, I was keeping stuff obviously, because I've always been really into this, Um, but I wasn't really breeding at that point. And then two things happened. Vivarium magazine came out, the national reptile breeders expo began, which was in Orlando at the time. Now it's, we call Daytona, but it used to be in Orlando. And I got hit by hurricane Andrew, which completely obliterated Miami and, and wiped out all my hunting spots. So that, that was like a perfect storm for me. It essentially pulled me out of business, but then I had all this inspiration from Philippe de you know, all the big breeders that, that everybody knows, you know, the, like I said, the Bob Clarks, the Pete calls, the, um, Bert Wanger And, uh, and it, it was just like, I went to that first reptiles breeders expo and I saw, how awesome it was. And there were all these different things and people were like totally professional and it's like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So when I got back to Miami, I started, you know, I continued to do what I, some commercial collecting, what little bit I could do, but I really started focusing on, okay, I'm going to catch 5,000 night this season. I'm going to trade them as many as I can for stuff I want to breed. And, uh, and that was pretty much it. And then it just kind of, it's snowballed ever since. So, but yeah, it was, it was those guys, um, all of those, you know, kind of founding father guys, but it was, it was, I remember being totally blown away by a uh, P call had a a display behind him and he had a, a piebald ball Python. And that was like, everybody was going over to the table and he had people stacked up
3: <laughs> uh, just to
2: look at this photo of this thing, you know, and, stuff like that.
0: So I I, I don't know. So, so was there, you know, with, with all of those guys kind of present and working and so much change and development kind of going on around that era in, in her pediculture, was it something different that was captivating and interesting about each figure or operation? Like, like, or, or was there like a common through line between all, you know, through all those guys or all those people who were at the cutting edge, who were doing something interesting, or were they all, was it just something different about each one?
2: Um, I don't know. I mean, I think for like I still follow everybody today. I mean, I knew about Roy from stuff that I saw that he was doing. So mm-hmm. it's like, okay, this guy's doing cool shit. And and then obviously your dumbass, I knew about you. And uh <laughs> and, and you fucking uromastics boy um but um but, but yeah i mean i mean i'm st- i'm like i'm still a big fucking fan i mean i was a fan then i'm a fan now and this is kind of a fan driven kind of weird mm-hmm. rock star-ish kind of business you know where you're kind of it's more like art, actually i shouldn't even say that it's more like an artist driven business. Like we're all totally. like fucking artists is what we are. We, we all do varying things. None of us are okay. Guys like the three of us are not really businessmen we have in the industry. We have these business guys, but then they have people like us that are more like for us, it's more about um, what we're doing than it is about the the monetary gain. And I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not knocking the monetary gain. I fucking do this for a living. It's really nice to be able to pay your bills. Mm-hmm um and and it does factor into our decisions but it doesn't it's definitely not the most important thing so when heather and i decide we're going to do something we we are like most of the discussion is around what do we really want to do like what is the most not not so much the the financial gain part of it but we obviously we have to take that into account so we figure out if it's actually possible because we're not we can't afford to just do things that don't pay for themselves and and make a little (laughs) bit more. So we keep pushing forward. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's it. I think, so I used to look at all those guys and, you know, like Pete call was a big partier. I never really got into that. Uh, So that kind of aspect of that, there was a lot of that back then there was like, there's crazy fucking parties and, you know, they were, they were doing, cocaine and hookers and all that, and I was like, <laughs> that, that you guys i'm Sick. not really i'm not really interested in all that um so i, I was like and, and it was weird for me because i grew up in south florida right so the scene in flor in south florida was very different than the rest of the united states like i had way more in common with the california guys like and another name that I forgot to mention that was a big influence on me was Bob Mayhew from Sandfire. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. So, yeah. Really so cool. Bob yeah. and I, yeah. Bob actually in like I don't remember when it was, but I was, I think I sold Alan Rapashi his first lizards, or maybe maybe I was the second guy, but fucking Alan and I were about the same age, and this fucker he wanted some frill dragons, and he, <laughs> people told him I was the guy that could get them for him. So I got them for him. And then, like, we started talking on the phone every day because he was super hardcore. Alan's like, man, when he gets into something, he's all in. <laughs> and uh, so him and I would talk every day. And then, like, three months in, this fucker was like, you got to come out here for a week and hang out. We'll go We'll go to Sandfire Dragon Ranch. We'll go. I'll get you behind the scenes at San Diego Zoo and Ooh. all this. So I wouldn't do it. For a couple of reasons. One, I was freaking poor as shit at the time, couldn't afford a plane ticket. Two, I I'd never been on a plane at but till that <laughs> point and I had no intentions of getting on a fucking plane. <laughs> and one day uh. in the mail this fucking envelope shows up and it's a ticket for me to fly out to San Diego for a week for, for that Alan bought and sent to me. Oh wow. And that was a, actually a fucking another life-changing event because I went out there and it was so different. Miami, and we went to all, we went to see Pete Kuhn, which was Python Pete at the time. Mm. He was really a big monitor and Python guy at the time. Jeff Lem from San Diego Zoo gave me a full behind the scenes. I got I I went in, held Komodo dragons, and I was in a room full of Fiji Island iguanas and playing with all this shit. It was fucking awesome. And I stayed at <laughs> Allen's La Jolla house, little rich boy living up on the side of this friggin' <laughs> hill, and, and uh, Dude, but it was it was, it was, it was life-changing. I mean, like I came back from there and I was like, holy shit, man, things are so much better, you know, and there's so, and all those guys out there were like, they were like me, they were very nerdy about this. They were really hardcore, really into it. It was all about, about pushing herpeticulture forward and fun Mm. and doing Mm -hmm. new shit. And uh, that was like, there was a series of things for me in the early nineties that just kept pushing me you know, I, I, I had experiences that then got me to thinking about things differently and Then I used it to kind of, to
0: kind of get ahead. Um, so, it's so I mean. in, it's so interesting to think about, um, like different differences in coast and region and how that affects your herping and, 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 you know, like oh, yeah. how I didn't, I didn't even, I don't know why, but I, I truly did, had not considered that until now, but it, it's true. <laughs> oh yeah. No, where, where I
2: was from, miami was drug dealers who Mm -hmm. used reptiles to hide their their cocaine and so a lot of the drug a lot of the initial reptile import trade was they all those guys were drug dealers or Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. involved in it in some way that's why there was so many uh so much shit that went down and and then there you know there's the guys like crutchfield who are, are very into it but but he's kind of got his own kind of thing. And he was on the West coast. I didn't really interact with him much back in that time, Hmm. but he he was obviously very serious and he did. He's like, he is really into this stuff, but Mm. most of the rest of those guys in imported, they they're kind of like um, it's, it's just, they're not really into the whole breeding and, and, and all that kind of thing. So I really didn't have a lot of people to talk to locally. So I fucking had huge phone bills because all I was on the phone with California (laughs) all all the time oh that's funny and, uh, yeah working so working stuff out and trying to figure out how to make this shit work and it
0: was uh it was interesting it it's definitely weird to think about um those moments in any pursuit that just completely revolutionized the way you're thinking about the yeah. whatever whatever it is. so like mm-hmm. in in jujitsu um I've had this more you know multiple times whether it was, like first starting and you're a white belt and you just go in and some little tiny person just like chokes the shit out of you or whatever. and the, <laughs> Or or that moment when you're getting really, really good and you're starting to like win competitions and see progress and then yeah. you go roll with some world champion and you feel like you've never even done it before, yeah. you know, you're just done. And um, sometimes they're, they're like totally bland moments, like something that would have seemed otherwise completely mundane can change everything that you're thinking. And, um, so a little side tangent is I had an experience like that when I was working at reptilian Haven, which was like a, uh, the first reptile shop here in Colorado. And, um, I it's closed now, but I used to go there all the time as a kid. And I worked there in my teen years. And, um, uh, at the time I was working and my friend, Nick Dokai, who was of innovative ectotherms, he showed up cause he had worked there as well. And he showed up to show everybody some of the lizards he just caught on a herping trip. And he brought in this styrofoam cooler. And all I cared about up until that moment was bearded dragons. That's all I, you know what I mean? Just for whatever reason, I don't know. I was just obsessed with them. Right. And um, he comes in, cracks open this cooler and has, you know, collared lizards and horn, like three species of collared lizards, horned lizards, zebra tail lizards, leopard lizards, desert iguanas, Chuck Wallace. And I was like, what? Like there's these, this whole other, and it seems really like obvious, you know what I mean? But seeing him in a book is nothing like nothing, not even close to someone just having it in hand right in front of you. You're just like, Whoa, like whole it just changes everything. Um, so it's cool to hear about the, and And it's cool that it was from like the generosity of a friend that someone was like, Hey, come out here, you know, come out to yeah. San Diego, come check it out. That's really, that's a really awesome story. Amazing. Yeah, and then yeah. a few months
2: in that, it was only a few months after he got started and he, he had already amassed an amazing freaking collection. I mean, when I went to that place, I was expecting, you know, like a small room. And Alan, by the time I got there, he had all these little monitors. He had tons of frill dragons. He, he had all, he was just killing it. Wow. So, um yeah, he... He used to be a fish guy too, and, and he's just super hardcore, man. That's why, I mean, i him and I are friends to this day, and I we still use all his food products and mm. stuff like that. They're part of the regular part of the rotations that we use. Um, mm. but yeah, it was, it was, uh, that was a life changer, man, especially, uh, Sandfire Dragon Ranch. I was like, oh, all right, this, this is awesome because it was all outdoor stuff, and yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. I totally remember looking through the old, was it the advanced vivarium system series with Philippe mm-hmm. and yep. Bob Mayhew and yep. seeing all the pictures of Sandfire and was like, that is the goal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's so amazing.
0: What, what was uh, the experience of at, like going there and, and seeing it? What were some of the things that just jumped out to you that either were new to you at the time or something that you hadn't thought of or hadn't considered or something that you just thought was you know extra impressive i mean obviously everything they were doing was impressive but you know you know what i mean
2: well it was it was more scope um Mm. i had a lot of the things that he was working with at the time i was already breed bearded dragons and blue tongues and stuff like that but when you went to this place he had these giant greenhouses and and he had so much and i I was just walking around go okay this is i can this is that possible and it at that mm. point in my head, I had not been to any place that big. Mm. Now, since then, I've been to places like reptile industries that are gigantic. And, and um, it's uh, that those those places are even hard to describe how how massive mm. they are. But um, Bob's place was pretty big at the time anyway. And, you know, he probably had, I want to say, eight eight to ten greenhouses, maybe. And some of them were set up for frogs. And even though we were in the desert outside of San Diego, when you walked into that frog greenhouse, it was like being home in Florida uh, and he had all the same plants. And, and there was fucking frogs all over the place. And he was just killing it. It was just, and it was a lot of, it was the more thing, like watching him work on those different you know the like the line bread stuff that he was doing with the sand fire dragon mm-hmm. and stuff like that looking at that i was like okay there's this is way cooler than than what i really had thought up to that point um so it was one of the things that drove behind, it was one of the driving forces behind my work with boa constrictors at the time which was edited in the blood bows and the motley bows and stuff like that because seeing that really got me to think okay well i'm in these reptile import places Every fucking day, almost. I, they, mm. I, they were, there were like five of them within 20 minutes of my house. And I would go out all day, catch an and then load up one of them at the end of the day. So I, I was constantly in a rotation around Miami and they were all became friends. And then I got to then I was like, hey, what's coming in? They tell me when it was coming in, when they would. So I'd go there and even help them unpack it for free mm. just so I could look through. That was how I found the blood bow as I was helping this guy, Brian Blackwood unpack his El Salvador shipment and popped (laughs) open like the second bag. And there were 30 or 40 boas in there and there were three bright red ones. And we pulled that out and we found a fourth bright red one. And then we found what were probably T3 T positive albinos. And we found black tailed anneries, which no one had ever seen at that point. All of the same shipment. It was only like amazing. It was a few hundred boas, and it was just loaded with. uh, So we, I bought them all for like 35 bucks a piece. Yeah. Oh man, <laughs> dude, you should see what I did with ball pythons. When all those guys were crazy buying ball pythons, I would go and cream those shipments and bounce <laughs> out with, with sometimes five, ten, like crazy things. And then I had these different breeders that were paying me two grand a pop. I was paying nine dollars for the ball pythons, flipping them for two grand. And this oh was like my a,
0: god, this
2: was like mid '90s. So at the time, it was a lot of money wow. to yeah. me. Those yeah. guys though took those and went on to make like Brilliant. you know enormous things out of it. Yeah, there was wow. pastels and oh, wow. I had the second. Um, I think they called them caramel albinos. I got the second or third one, and I sold that thing for twenty grand in, in the nineties. So, oh my
0: god, dude!
2: Right? Man, that is amazing. That's a yeah. crazy amount of money, man. That was a crazy time, man. People yeah. were just. I mean, I, you would go there to, to strictly sometimes during a ball python shipment. There, Kevin McCurley would be there going through mm-hmm. stuff from Nerd, and you know, I you would see like it was like a who's who of of pretty much a lot of people that are
0: still in it today that used to fly down to Miami to go through the shipments. Uh, what about so that that time? Um, what trying to figure out exactly how to like, what the best way to phrase this question. So it makes the most sense. But, um, you know, when I think about, Evan. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> that's okay. Um, I mean, I, I feel like, so I'm, I'm only 35. I've only been in the game for a little while. And I feel like just from when I was a little kid getting into rep's house till now, it's just a totally different world. And, and I wasn't yeah. even, I wasn't even at all deeply involved. I was just a little kid, just, you know, like, Oh, I see cool shit. I don't know. And, you know, so I had no idea until later the kind of stuff that was going on broadly in her pediculture. And so um, I guess this is a long winded way of asking what, what are some of the biggest differences between the, you know, whatever you might consider the early days for you and the times that you thought, you know, were maybe the most interesting or most wild compared to now and is there something about that time frame that you miss or like wish was still that way today or you know actually no
2: and um <laughs> well, because I I just I do my I really it doesn't pay to think too much about the past. The past is fucking dead you're never going back. Hmm. So it, so I look, kind of look at things that way. I'm, I try to anyway, you know, I mean, I get caught up in rose colored glasses too, mm. but for the most part, when I do catch myself, then I'm like, okay, yeah, it, this was good, but there was all this other bad shit that mm. was going on at the same time. And things have gotten much better in general. The trade is much better than it ever was, even though everybody, you know, you see the shit on Facebook and everybody thinks, Oh, so it's, you know, even I sometimes, when I have to sift through some of the challenging messages that you get every once in a while, um, I think, oh, my God, these fuckers.
3: But,
2: <laughs> for the, but, yeah. but I mean, honestly, if you honestly think about it, it's far superior, the advent of, of, of social media and the ease mm-hmm. of which information travels now and is shared back and forth the only real negative thing I see that's come out of social media is the whole group think kind of thing where these, they have a group and then they Mm. kind of become their own little, little stagnant pool of misinformation and stupidity. And, you know, you get these self-appointed leaders that don't know shit about anything that have almost (laughs) no experience. And then, and they, they affect large masses of people with, with, Nonsense. Mm-hmm. So that's the only thing, the only downside that I could see. That otherwise, social media has largely been a pretty, pretty positive um, thing for the her her trade. I mean, we, and that's something we didn't have. Um, you also have a lot more like serious people that are involved now. You also have a lot of noobs, but some of those noobs will become serious people. So
3: mm-hmm.
2: it's like um, you know, we didn't have it. It used to be. The domain. I mean, honestly, the, the reptile domain was like split in two things. It was rednecks. They wanted giant snakes around their neck and, and crocodiles in their pickup truck. and and uh, Guilty as charged. And nerd, you know? Yeah. No, you're definitely a nerd, Roy. I've seen your setups. You're, you're, um, and I mean, I had a mullet, so... I, but... but uh, but yeah, I mean, that that's what it was. It was, it was kind of rednecks drug dealers and, and, um, and, and nerds, you know, guys that were serious. So mm-hmm. now it's much, it's totally different in the, in the, because the, the, the different, the amount of people that have come in from all over the spectrum, you know, we have, you know, you've got everything from soccer moms that are all into bearded dragons, yeah. to, you know, these, I mean, there's rock stars in this and, and actors and, and yeah. businessmen and, and just everybody. Now reptiles have really penetrated the uh, you know, the American and actually the world, uh, you know, psyche where we're everywhere. Now we're in ads, you know, TV ads and shit like that. Like there's all, it's, it's everywhere. So it used to be this, when I first started, it was like this weirdo little thing. And I remember hearing quite a bit, you need to get a real job. You need to find some a serious way to make a living. You know, you need to go to, you need to get your ass, go get your GED. At that point, cause I had already dropped out They were Like you need to go get a GED and then go get a technical trade. And I'm like, I can't, I can't do anything technical. Like I can't even fucking like whatever. I can't do any of that shit. So I was like, nah, that's not going to work.
0: <laughs> the, the so, uh, that's hilarious because I feel like I got some of that same shit growing up, and I can't imagine how much more you must have gotten it. That you know, a, you know, several more a couple uh, decades, decades before it. decades. <laughs> 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 it was it was a minute ago, like two decades, man. Well, I mean, so. I like my my old man thought I was fucking insane. He was like, I don't know why you even want to do this. They seem like this seems like a real dead end, you know this yeah. this this whole thing. And um, you know, you tell people it's like they're you know they come over to your house and they're like, what do you, what is this? And you're like, oh, I have lizards. And they're like, you have what? You know, like they it's it was such a I got picked on it on about it several times, like many many times throughout the years. I was bullied for being into reptiles, like li- like quite literally. I had. Uh, a bully in high school who called me lizard fucker. Like that was, that was his thing was like his, this is a big dig at you. And I'm like, I just like lizards, dude. What's your problem? But anyway, if I had to go through that, I can't imagine what it was like in a few years before, like it, it, that's got to be a huge change oh it was
2: exactly like that for me I, I had the same thing i had bullies i matter of fact in like elementary school because i was this weird kid that would just sit in the corner during recess and read reptile books while the rest yeah. of them were all talking. i'm like i have nothing to talk to you about get the fuck out of here i i got stuff to do <laughs> so i'd be i'd be sitting there reading these reptile books right and one of these little assholes, I don't remember, he made up this he, Ron St. Pierre song. He loves lizards. And the, and he would get the whole class to sing this thing. They'd all clap their hands. And it was fucking, oh I mean, at God. the time, at the time it was embarrassing, but you know what? I'm one of those guys that the more you piss me off, the f- I just use it as fuel.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I'm just yeah, like, yeah. fuck
2: you motherfuckers. And, yeah. and I just <laughs> kind of did my own shit. So all the, I mean, I'm not going to lie. The initial when I did my, a lot of the stuff that made me very well known back in the 90s, most of that was completely fueled by hate.
3: <laughs> I was,
2: I was, I was a freaking raging ball of hate at that time. I <laughs> fucking hated the world and everybody in it. And I was going to do my shit. And, and, and that was it. I had this, I was very angry. Uh, you know, I was this super freaking hardcore headbanger. And, you know, I mean, I grew up on, on the hardest punk and metal. I mean, I still, I'm still that guy today, but I'm just, now I'm very, you know, I started re- reading philosophy about 20 years ago to get, mm-hmm. to try to, you know, Alan Watts and Buddhist stuff and
3: mm-hmm.
2: all that to try to find a balance. And then mm-hmm. I got into stoicism and that made it a lot better. So I don't really, I mean, I'm sure Heather would, would say that, I that, you know, Every once in a while, I'm a little much to deal with, but I think, uh, I think for the most part, I mean, I let a lot of shit just fucking slide off now. I just don't care. So I had to put all that hate, that hate was killing me. So, uh, but yeah, initially about that. Yeah, it is. And it took, it took 10, like I disappeared from the reptile industry for 10 fucking years where I was still doing it, but it was totally, I was wholesaling hundred percent doing it totally down low Because I was trying to, when I was able to put all that hate aside, that was like in the early 2000s. I didn't know how to live. I didn't know what to do. I had no motivation because up until that point, I was totally driven by "fuck you, fuck everybody." I'm going to do this, and uh, and it was gone like overnight. I went through a bunch of shit, lost my tegu farm, and the and all the everything that went on with that when the crater is what, when I hit total fucking bottom, then I realized, man, I did this all to myself. I was just, that was the point where the hate just ate me up. And um, so I, I remember hitting bottom and then realizing, Holy crap, this is, this is, this sucks. Like my life's been shit up to this point. So then it took me 10 years to figure out how to, how to fuel myself, you know, the right way instead of, you know, you know, I like that. And that was all built up from when I was a little kid like you get it being bullied as a kid, oh, yeah. you know, having people tell you, oh, you can't do this, you know, and you yeah. know, I'm like, oh, I can't do this. OK, watch this. And yeah, you know, you go and throw everything I can. I could into it to to make it a reality.
1: I think in some ways it's it kind of um, it speaks to something about about herbiculture, about you. Um, probably all of the above that you managed to actually kind of come back to it from a different place. Cause I think in a lot of times when you, when people come to those kind of impasses, you know, of like what is actually fueling or motivating this no longer feels relevant. Very often those kinds of um, practices or crutches or whatever they are, just go away. Yep. So I think it's interesting that you like actually continue through it. And I'm curious about like, like what, if you have any insight into that, like what allowed that to happen, like how did you change, you know, what motivated it for you?
2: Well, I mean, it a couple things. Um, one was a really good friend of mine, old old friend from way back. It's a guy named Steve Moy. He did a lot of he's a he's a name that's probably not as well known as it should be but he did a lot of really great stuff back in the 90s with blue tongues with leopard Geckos, with bearded dragons he's he's to this day he still keeps and breeds stuff he's the manager now over at reptile industry so Hmm. uh, but him and i have been friends since we were kids we were vending a a show in south florida called the fern forest show it was one of the first reptile shows it was this little shit and i had this this little bastard next to me vending and he was this tiny little Chinese dude that wouldn't shut the fuck up. And I remember the whole show, I was like, God, this guy needs to shut up. He just kept talking to me. Every girl that went by, he was like, Hey baby. And since he was like five feet tall, he <laughs> could get away with that because he looked harmless. And, uh, and so, so I remember I hated his guts. I couldn't wait to get out of that show. And that fucker called me. We, we, he started calling me to buy stuff. I'd give him my, my phone number. And like a week later he was calling me to get stuff. And then we started collecting together and I was like, and he's been one of my best friends ever since there's actually a pattern with that. Because usually the people that I, the people that are like super close to me, I usually didn't like them when I first met them. Yeah. I had some kind of a, there was like some kind of weird uh, thing. They're like people that I was like, Oh, and then, then you realize, man, you're an, you're an idiot. Those, that guy's awesome.
0: So I I found that same thing. So many different weird relationships that started, started with a lot of tension. Yeah. Maybe maybe there was just like a, like similarities there. And you're just like, you're a little grinding. Yeah. You're a little too much like me. I don't like it. You know,
1: (laughs) something like that. But yeah, Something so also about the respect that comes after a good playground scrap, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that too. Yeah. I've got some
2: stories on that one. <laughs> some of these guys, but um, but yeah. So anyway, um, I had been gone for a while, and it was from from the industry, and uh, and he showed up at my house, and he was like, "Dude, what the fuck are you doing?" because I was doing nothing. Like I was just literally sitting around playing video games, and that was all I was doing. I had made enough money off of after the Tegu farm collapsed. My house was worth a shit ton of money more than I paid for it. So I we sold it and then I bought a mobile home and moved on to my parents' property. They had a big 10-acre track. So so we put our we put that, we paid cash for that, put it on there, and then we had a couple hundred grand left. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna. And I just lived off that for a while. I was just, because I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And and it was draining pretty quickly. So Steve came out and he's like, he was like, man, you know, I, he thought that I would be back in to, you know, have things going and I had literally had nothing and having him sit in my living room and basically bitch slap me and say, what the fuck are you doing, dude? You're gonna, <laughs> this is going to run out. And then what are you going to do? And he got me to think about it. So he's like, Hey, why don't you breed bearded dragons for us? He's like, we need them, we can't get enough, you know, just, just start doing that and we'll buy them all. So I did, and slowly it roped me back in. And then he kinda, I mean, he he really, in retrospect, he saved my ass because had he not done that, I was, I was working on gaming for a living at that point, I was making money selling video game uh, currency at the time. Mm-hmm. So and I was making enough that I thought, oh man, I could just set up 10 computers here and run 10 bots all day and and get paid for doing nothing. And I, I was playing these games anyway. Um You're so, crypto, crypto before crypto. It was yes, it was crypto yeah. before crypto. Um and that's what I was gonna do. And thank God he talked some sense into me because uh, you know, he got me back into doing that. I started, they started you know, getting me to, to bring in stuff. And then as I got back into the industry again, I, I was like, okay, I really want to do this. This is, there were all these unfinished things that when, when everything went to hell for me in like 2004, whenever it was, um, that, that I still had not achieved. Like I had, I had a, a list in my head, a map of all the things that I intended to do. And there was, it was like unfinished So at that point, it, I kind of, uh, after about a year or two of breeding bearded dragons, I I resumed the quest
0: to finish that list and, uh, I'm still not done with it, but it's getting close. So So speak. So speaking of that list, um, is there anything, any like species or project or, or anything that has like, just totally eluded you over the years it's just never materialized it's something you always wanted to but couldn't have happen or maybe even if it's something that's like i just yeah i just can't get that or whatever uh, all of um, the above.
2: no actually it would have been the lace monitors but now i have mm-hmm. them and although now the state's probably going to take them away from me so um, uh, it looks like they're gonna ban varanus 100 all varanus everything from an ackee to a komodo dragon are you and kidding I, no it may, it, it may not, i am got my fingers crossed that U.S. Arc Florida might be able to torpedo that, force them to do an individual by individual assessment, at which point lace monitors should come out as being a fairly low risk. Mm-hmm. But if they score a high, the way they have it now, if one Varanus scores high risk, which they already have one as Nile monitors, a high risk to the environment, right. then all Varanus are banned. Oh. So I'm concerned about that. I, I, I am, you know, we are going to cut down our monitors uh, down to just the lace
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I'm just going to try to ride it out until I, till I get a ban or not. Um, mm-hmm. But, but I, I, so that's kind of a bummer, but honestly, I've already kind of made peace with it too. If they do take them away, mm-hmm. that's okay. Um, there's, you know, Heather and I started this blue tongue skink thing, which um, she really wanted to get into them. And that was something we could do together um and so she got some and then my buddy ryan johnson uh said hey i've got all these like uh, all these albinos and super hypos and all these morphs he's like you want to take them on loan and see what you can do with them Ooh. so he sent them to us and this year they're producing awesome. and that is something that you know I- i'm really digging that so um it's been a lot of fun and it's something that her, like I said, her and I, that's something we can do together. The big monitors, they're a little too big. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so, um, and she, but she does, I mean, she really digs them too, but this is just like really, there's your your pussy. (laughs) Um, (laughs) there.
1: Oh, Phil, you always got to show it off.
3: Oh yeah. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah. Anyway.
1: just so everyone knows i was a bangle cat that uh crossed the screen there
3: yeah oh, yeah that's right a lot of these are going to be <laughs> spoken
2: not not video <laughs> <laughs> that
3: would have been, that'd have been an
0: interesting uh, uh that's even better yeah it would have been good um what about know. what about something that it you know something that you would have always liked to but it's just not in the well, cards. It's, well, actually, that we, uh, that's the other thing that we're doing is
2: I'm going to start doing blood pythons, which have always mm. been very something that I that was always kind of my retirement plan. When I got too old to go out and dig three feet underground to find these fucking pockets of monitor eggs or whatever lizard that I was working on out in 100 degree heat. I was like, okay, by then I'll just start building, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll set up a whole thing full of blood pythons. And that's what I will do. Nothing but those.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I'm really, I mean, I'm still, I'm not there yet. I'm still out there digging.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <For fucking modern laughs> eggs. But,
2: but when you have to do it in 98 degree heat and then you get to the bottom and then you find infertile eggs, it's a freaking bummer. Ah, uh. so. I was like, okay, well, if they take the monitors away from me completely, then then I'll just so do that. take away this pain. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll just I'll just do that. So, I I really see think that there'll be a time. It won't be anytime soon because we're really neck deep in this whole thing, and you know, mm. got got some crested gecko projects going and crap like that. But I really see a time where we will eventually become primarily blue tongues and blood pythons. And that'll be the two things that we do when we do it to the, where we put a hundred percent of everything we both have into it. And I'm doing, I mean, I've never uh, done as well as I do today, but that's not really just me. I mean, I'm good at building systems and, and figuring out, you know, shit like that. Right. But man, let me tell you something. when her and I got together and I saw her husbandry her husbandry is just freaking ridiculous. She is so mm-hmm. hardcore about it mm-hmm. and she she does things that I would never I mean I look at her doing that and I'm like I why do you do that? That's way above way above what's necessary. you know you can get away with just doing this. Thankfully she tells me to shut the fuck up and she does it her way anyway <laughs> and so so there, our stuff has never been as perfect. Like the babies are just amazing. She, she, she takes it to a level that I've never seen anybody else do. So when I realized that that's the dynamic that her and I had together, I'm like, well, this opens up some stuff. Cause you know, I couldn't handle large numbers of lizards by myself and keep them hundred percent perfect. And, mm-hmm. you know, because you start to fall behind the more you get. You know. Right. So we've cut our, we've done two things. We've cut our actual output way down and we're continuing to cut our output down. We eventually want to get this down to where we might be producing around a thousand lizards a year instead mm. of 3,000. We're down, we're 3,000 down from 5,000. So we've been oh, wow. slowly going in that direction and getting away from the wholesale thing and mm-hmm. um, you know, getting more focused towards super high quality, super high end. Uh, and eventually it's going to be mostly morphs, I think because I don't know I'm having fun with that it's it's I'm, I'm I've am done pretty much all the rare stuff that I ever wanted to do at this point mm-hmm. and the morph stuff is just I mean it's fun because it's like gambling on every egg you know or am I going to get that three gene four gene combo and is it going to be totally ass kicking and mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm having fun with that I'm going to do that with the annuls too so
0: there's definitely something fun about the um you know, it, earlier you were talking about how we're each of us is sort of their, you know, our own, in, like an artist in in some right. regard with what we do, and yep. there is, there is something quite artful about the the morph work that people can do. You know, um, especially when it's when it's done over long spans of time, people with very specific goals. I mean, at that point, it starts to resemble like dog breeds, and and you know, like I'm going to go to this this breeder for this very specific thing, because it's, it's artisanal. um, There's, there's so many things that go on in that. And, and it, you know, now you're looking, it's more designer. It's more, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, and that's that I think that's really cool. I think a lot of people, you know, kind of hate on the morph game in some Mm -hmm. regard. I mean, not, I guess some do, not a lot, but there's people out there. We all know, it's just like hate on the morph game, but I think it's just mainly the side effects. the morph game it's that people don't like but the the, those folks out there who who are really like knocking individual mutations out of the park and you see them work it over generation after generation after generation and something is refined and improved and then they they show you a picture they're like these are the the first ones I hatched 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And these are their great, 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 great grandkids. You're like, yep. Jesus Christ, that takes some doing, you know? Yeah, um, yeah no. And, and that, see, I'll, I'm sorry, Roy, go ahead. I, I
2: can't
1: shut No, no. no. so go ahead. <laughs> I was just gonna, no, 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 no. I was just going to say, I think that that aspect of just like, yeah, the longevity piece of it and like the lineage tracking is like really admirable stuff that people totally overlook a lot of times in those conversations yeah it's, um, it's hard to stick with something for that long
3: <laughs>
1: oh for sure yeah i mean and that's something that i've never done i i had the chance
2: to do that with bow constrictors and i worked on them for about 10 years before i jettisoned them and moved on to something else that was that's always been my my achilles heel is that since I, so much for it about it for me is about the system building and figuring out how can I take this thing and then and then figure out a way to reproduce amazing ones on a commercial scale, on a small commercial scale and, and keep the quality up way high and have this system that just works amazingly well. And so this the annoles, it took me eight, nine years to come up with a system. I'm still not completely happy with it, but I'm I've made peace with the fact that it's probably the best that I'm gonna get um it was surprisingly difficult and that that whole thing like it's easy if you're just you know you have a pair they're in a cage you know you can do a nice enclosure you can do stuff like that but when you're actually trying to figure out how to maximize your your time your output quality the needs of the animal you know all those things you're trying to get all that into one thing that is a whole different animal and it takes a long time um, a lot of iteration and stuff like that. So what would happen to me is that I would get the stuff. I'd work out the system. I get it to a point where finally I was done. It was really starting to produce the money was starting to come in and then I'd be like, Oh fuck that. I'm bored now. And I would sell a whole thing off and start over with something else. Mm. So that's, what's kept me from really, um, you know, getting ahead over the years. And, and, and uh, I mean, that was just my thing, but it's also why I produced some weird things.
0: I feel like that's something in what you said that was reminiscent of, um, so the last one we did, we spoke with Eric Haycraft right. and he, and he mentioned um, I think he mentioned something similar where he was talking about how some of his basilisks would have uh real small sales. And mm-hmm. he, he was talking about um, kind of refining what he was doing and finding some of the more um, nuanced changes that he needed to make to remedy that issue and talking about how it was like a long-term, you know what I mean? Like you, that's not something you can figure out in one year. It's just not going to, You know what I mean? That takes a long time and a lot of dedication. And I know that another one of the questions that Roy and I were going to talk with you about um, that we discussed was how you think about and how you go about designing the systems that you're, that you're putting in place. Um, You know, what are some of the broad, short-term and long-term things that you are taking into consideration when refining such systems wow that's a big one man
1: (laughs) that's a big one i I feel like yeah and something i feel like just to expound on a little bit from from what phil just said just definitely something i've noticed a lot in your in your keeping approach on as like one of your strong suits you know systems and it's actually rare (laughs) it's surprisingly rare to even hear people use the term systems when talking about herpetoculture, but I think that it's um, like systems thinking is really applicable to herpetoculture in a lot of ways. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I have curiosity about that too. And obviously that's a massive question. I don't don't know if there's an easy way into that that one, but.
2: Mm, Well, (laughs) I would say. 70% 70% of it is thrown shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just, that's just how, I mean, you know, you look at it and you're like, okay, well, sometimes you don't even know where to start. Like with the vagina knolls, I had a lot of history with them. I've been, I was commercially collecting them uh, from the time that I was about 10 years old, 12 years old. So I had a real long history. I probably had caught, 50,000, 80,000 of those in the time that I lived in Miami from over about a 16 year period. Cause I was catching about 5,000 a year supply in the trade at the time. So I really knew that animal well. I mean, I could tell, I knew exactly when to go out. I knew exactly what it does, where it would be found. I could be driving down the street at 40 miles an hour and there's one there, there's one there, there's one there, there's one there. And I would just, (laughs) I even had a, a rigged up system where I had this collapsible brim pole fishing pole that I had cut down and cut down and cut down so collapsed into 18 inches I wouldn't even get out of my truck I'd pull up underneath the tree put the noose out the window noose the knoll, pull it into the truck put it in a bag drive to the next tree and and with that method which was a system I could catch 100 a day for in, in like two hours don't you get on that bed you, <laughs> um, sorry, that dog is just she's gonna do it.
1: Um you caught her, dude. That was <laughs> impressive. No, I'm watching. I'm watching. <laughs> Wait <laughs> to see it go flying in the air. i was um, like mom
2: in the cookie jar stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I gotta put her medicine on it real quick. But um the uh I think so. As far as systems goes, I mean that's that's a, that's about sorry, that's about. That's about 70% of it. The rest of it is once you get sort of a base of what's working, then you start looking at what actually happens in the system. And then you just start turning <laughs> dials until you finally uh, get it going. With the anoles, one of the biggest problems was getting the eggs. They lay one egg. They'll lay it every week if it's hot enough. Um, and they're really good at hiding that egg. So, you know, if you get full bottom substrate, it's easy to miss it. And if you miss it, if there's any superworms in there or anything like that, they're gonna they're gonna eat the eggs. Um, mm. the eggs desiccate if they're in it, sitting in a dry spot for too long. There's all these things that go on. Um, so that was a huge problem. Um, screen caging was a huge problem. They because it's a lot of them will rub their nose on an all screen cage outdoors. Uh, they don't seem to do it inside in like last terrariums with screen tops. They, it seems like it's fairly rare that they'll rub on that. But outdoors, they're really a different animal. They're you know as soon as I bring them inside, they're all tame. But put them back outside, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: and then they're yeah. like, oh.
2: so <laughs> oh yeah. We had to work on that, and and all those things were overcame over time by just doing stuff. And actually, the egg thing. Was really a combination of laziness, um, Heather and Scott's input, and all the whole thing. Just the way it all came together was just like weird. So the final thing was I dropped this. I bought these cheap mass cane plants, and I mm-hmm. dropped one on the ground. Up until this point, I couldn't get the anoles to lay in anything really re- reliably um <laughs> she was going for it <laughs> I couldn't get him to lay in anything reliably and um so I was about to I was really getting disgusted I was like okay I'm just gonna have to check the bottoms of the pit cages all the time find him sitting on the bottom and then I dropped the plant and all the dirt fell out of it and I looked down and I was just like oh man I do not feel like picking that up and I had a I had a a bin full of cocoa fiber that was soaking for the monitor, uh, nest boxes. Mm. And that was much easier to grab that cocoa fiber and shove it in that pot, uh, where the dirt had fallen out. So I did, I did that. Don't you do it. I did that. And, um, uh, like a week later I found eggs in there and I was like, Holy crap. They, 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 they like this, this works.
3: Mm.
2: So then I went and did redid all it was like 50 plants. I redid all the plants. I pulled all the, the dirt out and repacked them with cocoa fiber and every and all started laying its eggs in there. And it just so happens that the mass cane plant can take a pretty good beating. You can actually pull that plant out every week and then just repack it. And it somehow survives. And it's pretty ratty by the end of the season, but they survive. And so it was just a weird combination that totally overcame that problem. That was a huge problem. So some of it's just dumb luck. And then the system was finalized when I couldn't figure out how to, how to you know, we have a 2000 square foot building with four bay doors and you can't, putting all the anoles in screen cages, I can't keep them outside at night because at night our property is besieged by all sorts of of furred vermin, <laughs> from, from raccoons and and possums to wildcats and even, there was even a, there was even a lemur, yeah. Oh my <laughs> god! So you know you can imagine what would happen if I left you know anoles out in these. It's like ringing the dinner bell, but the problem was it was a real nightmare. Pulling, putting, taking fifty cages out by hand, picking them up, putting them back in, and then. Heather suggested these freaking carts. And I just never thought about that. So she started looking around and then we eventually found a guy that was selling old Home Depot carts. And those that's totally changed it. Now I can roll them all over the place. I can roll them in full sun if I need to. I can roll them under the shade if I need to. I can roll them in the building. And that is that has just taken the whole and the whole thing, the ability to move them around easily. So the whole system came together with the, with that cart. So, but it took eight years of iteration and three different people input to eventually come up with, and, and then some, some dumb luck and
0: some laziness thrown in. So I, I am infatuated with this idea of getting large carts and rolling my baby Euromastics out into the sun in the yard in my shop. Yep. So uh yes. thank you thank you for that. Yeah. That
2: Dude, I'm telling you it's, it's, the it's a game changer. That's I'm unreal. doing it with all kinds of stuff now. We, we
0: uh, No, no bro, keep, keep going. No,
2: no, no. I was just going to say it's I, now it's going to be probably
0: a permanent part of what we do. Uh, Roy and I were talking um, a little bit before you signed on and we were talking about how uh, there's this area of I mean, I guess there's many areas like this, but one of, the, to me, what seems like one of the more clear and obvious areas of herpeticulture that could take, really has a lot of like meat to chew on in terms of engineering and intellectual problem solving is like lighting and heating systems for reptiles, right? Like, yeah, and, and, sure. and making it, you know, like the fact that I'm still putting a dome with a heat bulb over my, you know, what I, it just feels like a tear it it works and it's fine and whatever, but it just seems like there's gotta be a way, better fucking way to do this, man. Like there's gotta be a better way. And I'm not an engineer, so I don't know, but, um, you yeah. it, it feels like the, cause it feels like there's a point where the engineering that you're going to, that you're going to put into any product. Yeah. It'll be great for people who live in parts of the world where taking your animals outside, isn't really in the cards like Alaska or whatever, but right. like, For the for the majority of us, there's probably gonna be an edge where like engineer your products and make them as good as you can. And then there's gonna hit a point where it's like just put them out fucking side, man. Right. Like there's (laughs) gotta be some, there's gonna be a point where there's a line and you're gonna cross it, right? And some of that's gonna depend on where you live and what you're working with and all of that stuff. But like um this made me think of you posted a video, Ron, of the that stingray breeder in Singapore. Yeah, that's, that's an inspiring video. That was crazy. And, uh, I had no clue that there was someone out there doing anything like that, but that also struck me as a guy who was really systematizing and making use of his space and his region and like what he was working with in concert with each other. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this. I just (laughs) no, And
2: that's all things that that you have to take into account. And that's all stuff that I take into account for everything. It it really is. When I build a system, it's really not copyable by anybody because it's built for this spot for this. Mm -hmm. And actually it's even built for the particular spot we live in. Like Mm -hmm. every time we've moved, see that was one of the things that screwed us up a few years ago is we, we moved three times in three years because Mm -hmm. her, her and I were both, getting in the middle of divorces and stuff like that we we're bouncing around mm. so we had to move the whole setup three times and it really set like this The old thing that's happening this year where i'm finally getting like the albinos to market and all the blue and the podiums and all that stuff most of that should have happened five years ago but mm. those three years of moving the two years that i was couch surfing and bouncing around that all really set that back that that actually those projects almost uh ceased to exist mm-hmm. like i got to the point where i'd sold them all and the guy that sold them that bought them turned around and handed them back to me and said Finish the job mm-hmm. so he uh so, and that's why we have it today but um once we got we got stable then and we knew we weren't going to go anywhere then we could look at this you know like like when we build Uh, outdoor cages i will spend a year usually walking around the yard taking photos of the ground during different times of the day looking for how the sun exposure works at different parts of the year Mm -hmm. so i can go back and look through my phone and find the phone go okay well this like december this is all shaded this is not going to work because i need sun to hit them during those months to keep them warm enough and there's all kind of shit like that that so when you design a system, it really that, and that's what that Stingray guy did. That guy designed a system for Singapore. That's actually an outdoor building. It's just covered, like right? Right. And his whole thing is designed around. But I also like the the I've done done a lot of looking into like substrateless enclosures, which is what he does. He runs substrateless, and mm-hmm. I look at a lot of I take I've actually taken a lot of the stuff that I use over the last thirty or forty years that I have not really gotten from the reptile people. I've gotten it from the fish people mm-hmm. because yeah. the fish guys, I mean, if you go look at their YouTube channels, like they're big YouTubers for the most part, they're not clickbait. They're not like, Oh, I'm holding this Cobra and I'm a bad, ass. you know, they're like, super, <laughs> they're like really smart, you know, people in there. And they prove that you don't need to do, you know, the sensational thing to have oh. millions of subscribers. So they're very, they're very, smartly you know they're very oriented like our, our people are our people basically taking jackass and and screwed it onto to the reptile thing and that's what we have and, and that's cool I mean I'm not knocking them I, I'm not a hater I watch all those channels for the most part mostly see what those guys are doing I know a lot of them personally most of them are cool I'm not a big fan of a couple of the Miami uh, snake handler guys that kind of, what, 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 freaking Cobra guys, whatever. Do you want to be a douchebag? That's fine. Um, but, but, um, but, but, you know, that's not really what I want to see. I want to like Dave Kaufman does a good job. He's mm-hmm. and, and what he does is very similar to what the fish guys do. And Kenan Harkin kind of does the same thing. Although Kenan's is more about, you know, his property and what he's, you know, how his, his whole thing, but, but it's very, it's very much like a lot of the fish guys. So those two guys, you know, and even Barjack lately seems to be kind of going in that direction more and more. Like he's, he's gotten much more serious. He's got that badass zoo and, and mm. he's, he's more, and that podcast he does is actually pretty good. So he's kind of working and kind of heading in that direction too. Um, but fish guys in general, you can learn a lot from them. Like a lot. I look at a lot of discus people. Um, I look at, I look mostly at freshwater, even though I don't keep, I don't have a fucking fish, but a lot of the stuff they talk about, very applicable to herbiculture, um, they've overcome uh, their own problems, but you can, you can kind of Take those problems out, and then look at a similar problem, and then say, "Okay, well, shit, these guys did this to remedy this issue, and this over here with these geckos is very similar to what happens with these discus. So maybe if I take that and kind of try to screw that onto there, and a lot of times it works. And so you just you can um, you can really gain a like I think personally that my interests in that in you know, I have a little bit of botanical interest, not much, like, again, I don't keep plants, but I learned about plants because I had to initially. And then over time I kind of came to appreciate things like cycads and palm trees and shit like that. Mm. And in that thing, I learned a lot of different stuff, you know, Mm. that applied. And I looked at bird breeding for a while and my parents Mm. were breeding birds. And then, so I started looking at different, you know, like there's some really amazing parrot breeders around the world and, look at all the stuff they do and how they, how they view what they do, you know, like some of them are all about Amazon parrots and that's all they do. And they make all these crazy morphs and colors and combos and stuff like that, basically like what we do. And they're very hardcore about it. And so at this phase, I think that's the phase that, that heather and i are kind of going in where we're now kind of looking at it like okay we're going to do less species we're probably going to get it down to just a couple but we're going to try to be the absolute best we can be with those couple things and this is going to be long term no more uh you know i did this project i got it to market and now it's time to move on to
0: something else mm. so that's uh so we you um you Ron, you you're so you've you've got you and, and heather both have such a a breadth of experience and you and you guys have had, kept so much stuff. Um, what do you think it is that makes you guys uh, or, you know, what, what is it uh, do you think that makes you guys so generalist oriented? Like, or maybe not just you guys specifically. I'd like to know that too, but also um, other people. What are some of the differences you've noticed if you haven't have noticed any differences between the specialists and the, the generalists, because they exist in every kind of niche, yeah. niche industry. Right. I mean, I can think of the same dichotomy in jujitsu, in right. class, classical drawing and painting, um, mm-hmm. rock climbing. You've got generalists and specialists in herpeticulture I mean, I feel like I'm kind of a specialist, you know, like I'm, I'm <laughs> just, just desert shit. You know, I almost never, except for rare occasions, venture out into the more moist stuff, but like, but you know, I'm like fascinated by all those guys and um, we're probably going to have Nick Stacy on at some point too. And hopefully as long as he, you know, he said he would, he would be interested in coming on and he uh, is another guy who we, uh, who I like to watch uh, and cause he's doing incredible stuff. Anyway, I'm getting off topic, but specialist generalist, um, you know, what are some of the differences that you see in, in, in Herpers in particular uh, if you see any at all? Oh yeah,
2: I mean, is I mean, I'm a generalist that wants to be a specialist now. Okay, I'm tired of it. I've been a generalist for a very long time, but what, I, what, what I really appreciate is, like you said earlier, like the stingray guy. Mm-hmm. That's what I want, but I want a reptile version of that. Mm-hmm. Like that guy, had does two things really. He does the the stingrays and he does the arowanas, and that's mm-hmm. what he does. And they're freaking badass, and he does, produces amazing things, and he's known for that. And that's what he does. I could spend the rest of whatever I have left, (laughs) Um, you know, doing that. And then that's what I'm looking at now. And that's kind of where, and, but Heather's a specialist, like she, she's so hardcore in those dragons. I mean, Mm. she's, produces some of the best dragons in the country. And I'm not saying that. I'm not shilling. Obviously. I mean, obviously she's my girlfriend and we, you know, and all that, but I mean, she, that was one of the things I noticed about her. And that's how we met is that she had some of the best dragons. I've always bred dragons since like 88, never anywhere near the stuff that, that she did with them. And when I saw them, because not only was she doing all the mutations and combos of them, but she has all these extra criteria screwed on top. Like they have to have, they have to be very vigorous. They have She won't use anything that doesn't have a very, you know, like large heads and they have to be mm-hmm. really strong and the babies have to be big and the babies have to grow at a certain rate. Like I never put that kind of thought into what I was doing. Mine was always build the system, breed this rare stuff, get it out to other people and then move on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. So she's been doing that for like, I think she's on 16 years of specialist in devotion to bearded dragons um and now now you know ever since her and i got together she started branching out a little bit because now it's not just her now there's two of us so she can do stuff she wanted to do extra on the side so we started getting blue tongues and banana pectinata and she mm. just bred some of those and, um, so but my thing i bred everything from tortoises and water turtles to tree frogs and tons of lizards and a lot of snakes. I mean, I used to be a big snake guy uh, for a long time. I had a room full of boas and pythons and colubrids and I used to produce them all the time. And, you know, I did, well, I did, I had a room that I managed of that. And then I had the whole backyard was all monitors and cyclora and tegus.
0: And so, so, so what? what's changed? So what are the primary things that have changed, you know, other than, is it just context? Is it that you've, you've explored enough, you've, you've covered enough bases or, or yeah. is, it, 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 is it, it's It's okay. So is that, or, okay. Yeah.
2: I mean, I think, I think for me, I'm just, like I said, I I've always wanted to specialize, mm-hmm. but, but the things that um, I just never, I, I would always look. So uh, one of my big driving forces, I'll look at herbiculture and go, okay, nobody's doing this and people mm-hmm. seem to be interested in this. So I'll go do it because that's always been kind of my thing, you know, because that's a cheap way to get into something because if nobody's doing it, usually the initial stock is virtually worthless. Like Mm -hmm. like the Enol project, I built that up on relatively cheap compared to what a ball Python guy would have to, I mean, I have five mutations that no one else has but me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I start rolling those out, I have that's, I'm at the ground floor, five of them and I'll be able to combo a lot of those up. And, you know, I, I could probably milk that for 20 years. I know, mm-hmm. I don't think I'm going to, I think I'm going to do it for a time, get all the combos out. and Eventually that will be one of those mm-hmm. things that I no longer do as I build up. The, once the blood Python thing for me gets to a certain point Because like mm-hmm. I said, eventually I want with that. I want that stingray setup. I want,
3: mm-hmm. I want to
2: walk into a room, have it just full of the best uh, enclosures possible mm-hmm. with the best freaking you know examples of of these the mutations that exist in that animal and that's that's what i want and we're doing that with blue tongue skinks as well so that's kind of where where we're going but so you know it's 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 taxing to manage a large collection of a lot of species because there's fucking something always going wrong somewhere Mm
0: -hmm. it's like oh
2: this you know you're constantly putting out fires you're it's like trying to juggle all this different stuff but when you have like you know one or two things that's why specialists get so much farther um with whatever thing they're working on because they can just laser focus on that mm. and they can just work on being <laughs> the best at that but when you're trying to juggle 20 species or whatever the hell we had recently i don't remember it was so many i, I we even sent you some stuff because i was like i told ryan i was like i these defense are out of here (laughs) because I was like would forget they'd be over there just you know they Mm -hmm. did they weren't producing because I just
3: couldn't Mm -hmm.
2: they were healthy but I just couldn't stay on top of them to get them to push them to what I needed to do Mm -hmm. so about a year ago I started to really get a lot of that stuff out and so I mean I, I I really appreciate both things like I have friends that are generalists they do awesome stuff those guys, mostly the guys that do well with that are rare reptile guys. They have five of this and 10 of that and they, and they produce them. They're one of the only people that produce them and they get them out there and you know, everybody they're, they're filling a niche that's necessary and needed. Um, and I've done some of that. I've also always maintained a couple of, usually bearded dragons, sometimes crested gecko, but those, those kind of pillar species that pay the bills that you guarantee you're going to produce and the babies are going to sell and you're going to be able to eat. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah. So um, we always have some of that, but uh, you know, I just kind of, when I was watching that stingray video, I was looking at that going, you know, every time I write down a bucket list of things that I haven't done yet that I wanted to do, there's always a few things that are on that list and it's always been lace monitors, blood pythons, Sanxinia. Those are the three main things. And those are all three things I, I haven't done until recently. I There's almost no like, there's no like weird, obscure lizards on there. There's none of that. It's always been pretty much lace monitors, blood pythons and, and sansinia. And I've started to set up the blood python thing a few times and just never did it because I was like, okay, well, You know, this is just another thing on top of all this other crap and I'm struggling to manage all that. So
0: what is it about the blood pythons that is uh that catches your eye? I mean, I like
2: things that are short, fat, and slow. (laughs) 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 That's really that's really what it comes down to. Um I just I I like I mean, I like blood pythons ever since I first saw the first ones um when I was a kid, they always really kind of, you know. just it just stuck it's like here's this it's it's a giant snake but it's not a giant snake because it only gets five feet but it gets as (laughs) fucking big around as your calf you know (laughs) so and they're and they're they're impressive to look at the color variety in those things is outrageous the morphs are beautiful i mean the morphs on those things are crazy and now that they're making combos and stuff like that they're just getting even crazier looking it's a big egg. They lay a decent amount of eggs, you know, they have mm-hmm. 10 to 30 or whatever it is, 10 to 20. Um, so everything about that animal is just, you know, and, and they don't need large enclosures. So you don't, you know, it's, it's not like trying to shove a retake in a six foot, you know, mm-hmm. and they have, they have really killer racks now that are perfect for that snake. You know, mm-hmm. you can get those bigger six foot racks, you can get the four foot racks, but um. Those steel rack companies, you know, like Freedom Breeder and ARS, they make amazing racks for them. So I was looking at that going, you know, that's that's kind of my version of the Stingray guy. And and blue tongues are very similar. Short, fat, slow, relatively speaking, fun to breed. Lots of different. I mean, we've got we've got all these crazy morphs. And once we start comboing those up, I think I mean, well, I've seen what Joe Ball's already done. So there's already. You can look at that and go, okay, that's some radical stuff. And those things are awesome. Mm -hmm. And blue tongues are just amazing. I mean, I can't, it's it's a weird thing to me that the bearded dragon has that, like that is the major pet lizard when really the blue tongue is the one that should have been it. Because it's the same size. It has basically the same temperament. It's a hell of a lot easier to take care of. It's Mm -hmm. cheaper to feed. You don't Mm -hmm. have all the, like right now, all of our insects, about half of them come in dead every shipment because it's so fucking hot. No matter what they do, they can't get them alive. So mm. we're bleeding um, money and 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 not having enough feeders of the... But with the blue tongues, you know, there's Rapashi. you know, they'll eat cat food if you're in a pinch. They eat hornworms. There's just a lot
0: of things about them. They eat fruit. So... Um, what what are what are some of the things that um that see that you know cuz you see these waves of of real popular stuff kind of pop up and then you know that you know a certain group of reptiles or a certain species will just kind of catch it almost like they catch a wave they hit like a critical mass at some point and there's like this yeah. le- there's this level of like you know because it was you know you get your bearded dragons your ball pythons your corn snakes your leopard geckos your crested geckos yeah. i feel like um you know, African fat tails, lychees are kind of on the periphery of that. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. and then maybe you've got your your um, blue tongues, which are now kind of getting up into that area where they're so there's a fuck ton of them. I had no idea. It wasn't until the last mm-hmm. couple of years where I started seeing all the variety of blue yeah. tongues. I had no clue, you know. And then yeah. and then obviously you have your you have the uh, the anoles. Um, there's a handful of animals that are just like, they kind of make their way. And I, and it, I don't know. Do you think it's, do they all have similarities that make them a big hit? Do you think it's timing? Do you think it's, I mean, there's probably a little bit of everything, right? Um,
2: I think it's, I think the biggest factor is they, they have to be iconic species. Some Mm. things that imprint on most people when they first see one thing and that, all the things you mentioned, those are iconic pillar species, Mm. you know, uh, all of them, the lychee's the, you know, I mean, the first time you see a lychee, you never forget it. He's a giant fucking mossy colored gecko. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a hard thing to, like, for me, it was emerald tree boas. It was, Mm -hmm. um, it was lace monitors. It was, um, you know, just that that kind of stuff. So, Moranus can be seen as a pillar species as a whole, the geckos as a whole, you know, the entire complex can be seen as that because mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of different species that could fall into that. So it's that it's most of the, the stuff that really takes off in the trade is absolutely morph driven. Mm-hmm. Cause once you get to that point where you can now create different variants of, you know, whatever it is you're working on, then people really start to take notice
3: mm-hmm.
2: and they start, cause now they're looking at, okay, well, I can make, for you know, I can make some normal ones. I can make albino ones. I can make, and then once there's a couple of morphs and you can see this going on with the crested geckos now, um, that market's just insane. And there's yeah. only like, there's only like mm-hmm. three, three or four. Um, actually there's, I think there's only two definite, uh, no, three now, three definite genetic mutations morphs there's a whole lot of like line bread stuff and mm. and there's a bunch of things that are probably morphs that that i just don't think have been tested you know people haven't really mm. they made assumptions on how they're carried and and some of the things that i've seen um, people say about them leads me to believe that there may be like a recessive component or maybe they're incomplete dominant mm. and they just haven't been figured out yet um but crested geckos event are, are quickly becoming one of the, I mean, they already were a big, you know, a very popular uh, thing, but now they're just seem to be like, I think they're going to go through the roof over the next couple of years.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Once mm-hmm. an albino comes out that, which is pretty much probably inevitable. Once you have thousands of it's funny, the morph thing is like, Is like a fucking snowball rolling downhill, right? Because (laughs) people start, start obviously inbreeding to make the mutations and you really can't find mutations unless you intentionally inbreed. So if you're not breeding two, you know, heads together, um, you're not going to find it. Well, you can have hidden heads and not ever know it. So yeah. up until this point, people were more concerned about, you know, genetic diversity, but now you have people intentionally trying to make the morphs. And then you'll find more morphs as, as a result of that. And that's how it happened with everything. You know, boas, leopard geckos, all the stuff that's gone before. They, they, You go along for a while and there's nothing. And then all of a sudden there's one and one becomes three. And then it seems like after you get three or four, then it just, the, the, the line just shoots to the roof. You know, it goes from like four to like 15 in a single year or new ones are found. That's because everybody's, you know, line breeding and inbreeding to try to make the existing mutations and then they find new stuff. So it's, it's amazing. I I think most of us, and I sure I have had new morphs under my nose that I didn't even know.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. no, that's that, that makes sense. You know, you and I, I think recently, Ron, we were, we were talking because now there's a handful of um, mutations that have popped up in uromastics over the last few years. Yeah, And some of them, some, of, I mean, obviously they're all interesting and weird, um, but, you know, it's, it's such a, it's such a weird thing to talk about because, you know, you have these, you have these, um, these groups of animals where people just have no problem to toying with them and making whatever you want out of them. And then you got this other group of people who think that the wild type locality specific is the most like that's the thing, man. That's the yeah, you know, it's got a real, mm-hmm. it's got a vibe. And you know, if you think of that as a sort of a spectrum, um, there's definitely a point where, you know, animals can and and maybe it's it's not just a point of popularity, it's probably um, Cause I think you and I were talking about this when we were talking about how there are certain animals where mutations of different varieties just don't seem to apply, like whether it's because of what the wild type of animal already looks like. So like with chameleons, right? Like, right. A pan- like how many panther chameleon morphs are there? Like, I don't know. Yeah, It's none. I- I- none. Right. Mm-hmm. Why do you need that? You know, you don't need right. it. Um, and then, and I mean, obviously we could get into the, ethics of, you know, the wild, is there really an ugly wild type lizard? No, probably not. But, you know, um, there's something about a panther chameleon where you're like, why would you fuck with this at all? You know, or mm-hmm. say, you know, same thing with like an ornate uromastyx. like what, what are you going to do to that? You know, or, um, you know, but then there are other animals that seem to kind of lend themselves to that sort of thing where it's like, all right, I could see kind of toying with the way this thing looks and making some adjustments or whatever. I mean, it's, um, it's weird that there's this dichotomy in the the way that we kind of think about them, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think both
2: things are important too. I mean, I think you have to, I mean, I appreciate, like I said, I appreciate the people that are purists. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They keep everything, you know, as close to wild type. They, they do their best to try to find, to make sure that what they have is pure, that it's from the locales that they believe it's from. I mean, but at the end of the day, all that stuff is questionable unless you've been yeah. on the ground yourself and picked stuff up. And at the same token, um, the morph thing is is you can do amazing stuff with that and it kind of have personalized animals, right? You can have mm-hmm. you can be known as the guy that has the the you know the pink uh, panther chameleon or mm-hmm. whatever whatever you know, um, and that's cool too. But then. On that side of it, I think one of the reasons that the morphs kind of get 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 some shit is because you have a lot of people that just kind of indiscriminately throw things around without much thought into it. And then, I mean, you can see that with ball pythons, right? If you go look at somebody like Justin Kabilka or that Ozzy Boats dude, those guys, I know who they are. And I don't give a shit about ball pythons, but I know who those two guys are because mm-hmm. their stuff is so incredible and it stands out. I mean, I, you know, I notice so um, but I can walk through a Tinley park and fall asleep while I'm going past all of the, the sea of brown ball pythons and just totally ignore them. And then I say, oh, look at an owl or, oh, well, you know, an iguana or something, you know, or something will catch my eye. I mean, I, I, I dig the boa guys. I, I dig the boa row that they usually have at Tinley. And I like that. i walk around. I'm like, okay, look, there's amaryllis. There's Look at that. It's a red dragon and all this stuff. And so totally dig that. I think, um, I, 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 really don't even know what I'm going with this. It seems to me like the boa guys generally put more thought into what they're doing and and maybe because there's less of them, there's less morphs to work with, you know, ball pythons have so many morphs now. It's, 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 it's actually unbelievable. <laughs> <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> you know? And uh, so there's, there's a lot, I I don't know. I don't even know where I'm going with this, man. I just, I just think that all of it is amazing in, in some level. It's all necessary. You just have to find your niche and then go after it. But like you were saying, some species definitely lend themselves more to mutation, like because their mutations are actually stunning, colorful, Mm -hmm. bright, you know, they they're eye catching. Some mutations just aren't like, there are some species that they're just too muted and they just don't display the mutation in in a radical way. I mean, to some degree, bearded dragons have that problem. Now they've kind of overcome it over the years by making them, you know, super red or super yellow or super white. Um, but they've had to do a lot of work and a lot of very thoughtful, you know, um, Selection to get them to that point because they are essentially, they were essentially a brown muted thing, you Mm -hmm. know. And I don't even know if an albino popped up, how I mean, I know they have, and I've seen them, the ones that were born in Australia. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you got a caramel albino that popped up, you might miss it, you might not even know it's there. So, you know, but if you had a caramel, like a T positive albino pop up in, you know, like a blood Mm -hmm. Python, you'll, you'll fucking know. (laughs) You'll be like, okay, look at that. You know, things like that. So, I mean, there's just, I don't know, dude, there's so much that goes into all this and it's hard to know. Um, For me personally, at this point, I probably going to stick with pillar species. I'm tired of mining new ground now. And and those two things that I, I really think that that's probably going to be our ultimate future is just really Mm -hmm. hardcore work on that, on that direction. Um,
0: so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go. Uh, I'm kind of rambling. It's okay. It's, it's, <laughs> it's good stuff, man. Um, so what are, what are some of the things about, I mean, at predicting the future is always stupid and silly and yeah. and, dif- and difficult, right. But, but yeah. like, um, without going so far as to say anything about pre- prediction, what are some things about the future of herpeticulture that you kind of feel like are are coming or um, or feel like are are likely to happen and what are some things that you might want to see that uh, see change hmm.
2: that's a tricky one um change is a is a funny thing man you got to be careful what you wish for on that one
3: mm-hmm.
2: so I don't think there's anything that I would say I'd like to see change because every positive that you gain, you gain a negative on that. And you just, mm-hmm. there's no such thing as a, as a straight positive. It's you you, you get a positive a- aspect of something, you gain a negative aspect with it. And mm-hmm. then it just comes down to, you know, which one can you live with? Can you live with the negative that's attached to that positive before you ask for that, you know, mm-hmm. and oftentimes, Things like I like I look at the like modern technology, right? We've got all these great things. Like I I love my fucking phone when I'm out. I have to go somewhere. I just put in where I need to go and it fucking tells me where I gotta go. And I mm-hmm. I don't have to drive around with map quest uh, you know, print out mm-hmm. things and be holding up a paper while I'm looking for the for the, for the place, of, you know, having the ability to to have all that information at my fingertips, anywhere I'm at in the world and instantaneously, that's amazing, mm-hmm. but it's coming to price. I mean, you know, we're all, we live in this anxiety vice that's, you know, and our lives are sped up exponentially. And um, so I don't mm-hmm. think I would be willing to trade it to get rid of it at this point, but I also recognize that, you know, so as far as Herbert culture, I think I try to only look at the positive sides of things, mm-hmm. even though that's very difficult to do. Mm. And I think where we're at, we're in a pretty damn good spot. I think uh, we made a lot of killer advancements. A lot of new people have come in and added things. Um, both of you have, and and so have a lot of other people, you know, so everybody uh, just keeps adding to the to the you know the whatever you call it the pool i guess um mm-hmm. and just everything makes everything better anything you add to that is going to be good it's a it's a net positive so as far as where it's going man i don't know if i i honestly I remember specifically selling those ball pythons. I was pulling out of shipments to these guys thinking this thing is never going to take off. These <laughs> things are fucking pet rocks and no one's ever going to care. These guys are crazy. <laughs> and I used to like, legitimately yeah. I would laugh. I'm like, I just can't, and I'm taking that money and I'm buying tagus and, you know, whatever dumb shit that I was doing. And they all got way ahead of me, like because they, they were smart. It was the right thing at the right time. They were into that. I was into Burmese pythons at the time. I had a room full of them. I mean, I, you know, retics and giant snakes, and uh, you know, so, um, so I'm really bad at predicting the future on this one. Uh, but I think, I think, like I said, I think it's going to continue to go. I think we're going to get some more regulation for sure, um, and even that. I mean, it's not all bad. Some of it right. is. There are positives attached to it. There are legitimate yeah. problems that a lot of those regulations are trying to address. So you can't just, you know, stick your fingers in your ear and scream that you're not going to take it. You're not going to accept anything because maybe that, you know, regulation actually does do good some, sometimes. <laughs> and this is coming from a guy who used to be a hardcore libertarian that thought that. You know, any regulation is bad regulation. I mean, I used to, I was pretty adamant about Mm -hmm. that. But when I look at the stuff that's going on, the stuff that's been, that people have done, and I just think that the general public doesn't really understand what exactly has gone on down here. And I'm not going to go into it now. I'm staying out of it as much as I can. But people legitimately did things. That caused legitimate problems. And then they were unable to stop the people from doing that because mm-hmm. the laws had no teeth.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So you can't expect um, the regulators to just sit around and take it up the ass and not want to change things to you know to give them more teeth. Now, are they overreaching on some stuff? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But at the same point, you know, everybody. I just wish everybody could just fucking go to a mediation meet in the middle compromise on both sides and, 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 and make smart choices for everybody. But the problem is nobody wants to fucking compromise one side wants it their, his, their way. And the other one wants it their way. And there's just, they're going to fight tooth and nail until the end. And I just think that ends up more often than not in extreme outcomes that aren't good for anybody mm, because right. yeah. we've, One side's gonna lose, absolutely. And if there was no compromise, maybe you could have worked it out. So, I mean, I don't know. I I think that's gonna keep coming. I think we have to, unfortunately, um, build a very strong lobby. I think that's what USARC needs to eventually become. So, um, you know, and I think it will happen. I mean, every time they pass a new law, USR gets, you know, people start realizing, oh, maybe I need to do something. You know, I need to support this, you know, for whatever. And and so they get a little stronger each time. And eventually we'll get to the point where we have, you know, a, a fairly strong lobby and that'll they, they can then go and speak on our behalf mm-hmm. to, to regulators and government officials and stuff like that, which they do now. And I think Phil Goss does a great job considering how spread thin the poor guy is i mean he's trying to put out fires all over the place Mm -hmm. and they're underfunded probably understaffed um, because the industry just hasn't really you know whether we don't have it or whether we're apathetic i don't know but Mm -hmm. you know they definitely are are in need of more help for sure so Mm -hmm. um but i don't think You know, there's a lot of people that think the sky is falling and they're going to take everything away and all that. That's not going to happen either. Let's be honest. That yeah, That's never going to happen. Regulators need somebody to regulate. Mm -hmm. That's like a parasite that kills its host before it can move on. Mm
0: -hmm. Nobody,
2: they don't want that. Nobody wants that. So, you know, that just comes down to the extremes, you know. Mm -hmm. It's so. Yeah. that's that's just what I think. I'm not worried about it. Like a lot of a lot of my my contemporaries here fleeing the state. I have no intentions of doing that. Mm-hmm. They're so convinced that the sky is falling and it's all over and they're going to take everything away. That's not going to happen. I have I I'm confident in that fact. It's
0: so a lot of guys here in Colorado who did the same thing uh, just when they instituted a, like a licensing system here through PACFA, which is the governing major governing body here. And it's like people left uprooted their family and their entire business just to go two States over. It's like, right. Seriously. Like it's just Mm -hmm. a, it's a $400 bill and expect inspection every year. Relax. Mm -hmm. You know? And it was, I get it. I mean, I understand I'm sympathetic, you know, there's certainly, it's easy to have libertarian sympathies and leanings. Right. Uh, If not, Mm -hmm. if not full blown, um, ideologies, but it's like, yeah, yeah. Anyway, not to not. To yeah, no. I mean, ling- that's, linger on that.
2: No, that's that's what's going on down here, and mm-hmm. um, the problem is the slippery slope thing, right? Every, a lot yeah. of everybody thinks, oh my god, you know, if they do this, then X is going to lead to Y, Y is going to lead to Z, and it's absolutely in that in that frame. That's not that doesn't that rarely happens. I I can't mm-hmm. think of an instance anyway just off the top. Although I'm sure there's some you could cite, but more often than not, that's not what happens. It's usually, you know, little things, inconveniences, aggravation, Um, even the Tegu ban. Apparently the only reason they banned Tegus um, was because when they looked at the permitting system, I'm told that there were only like six or 800 Tegus reported in the state. So (laughs) you're looking at that going, Okay, well, that's nothing in captivity. That's easy to get rid of. So it was easy to ban. Here's the interesting thing about that. So when they did this study, so they have a list. It's not a white list, not a black list. They have a list of species that are considered potentially hazardous to be loose in Florida, right? And they're, they have the University of Florida going through and assessing a risk assessment to each species. Mm. Okay. For, for Varanus though, they decided to do Varanus SP, which means all of them. Yeah. Because clearly they want those gone. And, and I have no doubt that if they do that, a lot of them will be found to be high risk and they'll ban them. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is that they've already done this on, on the large snakes, right? Mm -hmm. They did this. The study was done on like 10 years ago and it listed boa constrictor, as high risk at that point. And yet they never even brought it up. And they never suggested it. The snakes that they banned were held in relatively, all, all the snakes they banned were held in relatively no, no, low numbers. But I guarantee hmm. you that if they looked at the numbers of this amount of boa constrictors in this state, it must've been in the tens of thousands, maybe the hundreds right, of thousands. Right. Yeah. And they must've looked at that and goes, there's no way we can ban this because if we do, we'll cause an ecological disaster. And boa constrictor has been trapped inside this little place called the Deering Estate in Miami. It's like 10 acres or something Mm. on the ocean. They've never been able to get out of that. They're not found in the neighborhood around it. They're not found anywhere else. There's just a that place is just perfect. It has it has like cracks in the limestone that are kind of like caves that the boas Mm. live in that aren't found outside of there, you know, so they can't live in the neighborhood. They can't radiate outwards. They've been there for decades. <laughs> so I'm sure they looked at that and then even though they were a high risk and then looked at how many were in the state and then they're not found anywhere else. There's no boa constrictor colonies anywhere. And they didn't, they didn't ban them. They left them alone. They never even mentioned it. Right. So, interesting. so, 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 well, because it's, uh, they, they are taking into account other factors. And one of the factors is boas are a reptile. Uh, they are a pillar of the pet trade. They are held in extremely large numbers all across the United States and particularly in Florida. Mm-hmm. And uh, what are you going to do? If you ban, if you ban a snake that's held in tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of houses, what do you think is going to happen to a lot of those? A lot of those people are never going to even know that damn things are banned, right? People that are going, to, other people are going to freak out and dump them, and then you're going to create a a problem if if you know everybody starts throwing their boas out in their yard, and letting them go. Mm-hmm. So there's all those those things, and so that's the reason why I'm not particularly concerned. I'm even considering uh, running a, a boa blood python thing side to side because I I'm not concerned about it.
3: Mm. And
2: they may surprise me and they may bad boa constrictor and I'll be shocked if they do, but I I don't say, I don't think it's going to happen because I mean, I just, I, I I know they're not out to do what people are saying. They're not out to, they're not working for PETA. They're not out to Mm. run us all out of business. They're not doing any of that. They're regulators trying to regulate. You need to stay on top of them because you can't, they will, government will overreach when it gets the chance. That whole never let a crisis go to waste thing is a legit thing, people, that's what they do, that's how they operate.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So you always have to have people that slap their hand when they try to take too much, and that's what USR is for. Um, but you know, this idea that uh, any regulation is gonna lead to you know, uh, uh, essentially a, a cataclysm of the reptile trade in Florida is not going to happen.
0: Yeah, there's certainly a correlation, I think, between paranoia and uh, keeping reptiles um, <laughs> to say it's I mean, it's just the number of guys I've known over the years who I mean, granted, obviously, there's real concern over oversight and whatever, you know, we could debate that all day long, but there, it's, it's funny to me the the way those two line up there's just a i've never met more paranoid people than within reptiles you know it's just it's uh it's it's a little strange to a certain degree um well
2: reptile industry is a counterculture industry so you're gonna meet yeah eccentric people of all types
0: yeah i guess that's. (laughs) there's also a lot of overlap with the jujitsu and mma community too oddly enough there's just a lot of guys to do both of those things um uh oddly uh roy uh i know i just want to i know there's a there's one other kind of overarching question that we tend to ask everybody but i want to make sure because i you know i can monopolize the conversation as much as anybody so i want to make sure uh, roy (laughs) is there stuff that you wanted to ask ask ron um
1: i mean i'm just really enjoying this um i feel like it could could kind of continue with this kind of endlessly just spit yeah but yeah yeah um i think on the on this kind of while we're on this this subject of of like the future though of of herpetal culture as like a discipline or practice however you want to um think of it i'm curious um there's something that that one of the questions that, that phil was actually talking about was um like, what are some of like the kind of concepts or ideals that you'd like to see instilled mm. in kind of um, aspiring keepers and incoming keepers? Cause I feel like this, we are at this moment where it does feel like um, there's a m- massive growth curve happening. I feel yeah, like for a sure. growth trend in urban culture. And I think that it's interesting to see how like, like kind of the pandemic has probably impacted that. I think yeah. a lot of people just being at home and there's been a huge growth in podcasts around culture and media around culture. all that stuff of course is you know a positive um, feedback loop but i'm just curious yeah like what you see as like what you'd like to see more of in in incoming keepers if that makes sense
2: i mean i mean honestly what what the things that i like the like well, actually, you two are both examples of that, right? So so like I'm a fan of both of you. I knew who both of you were. I've watched both of you your work through social media and stuff and it caught my eye. Of the thousands of people there, there's maybe 50 of you out there that I really say, okay, that's cool shit and I watch the stuff that you guys post particularly. So I mean it's kind of that the that same mindset right that led to this podcast is like you know uh, guys that are doing smart shit, that are thinking outside the box, that are willing to take chances to push the envelope a little bit, because honestly, man, the good shit is in the fringes, right? I mean, everybody's, Mm. people do their best to stay out of the fringes, but if you don't, if no one goes in the fringes, you don't make any fucking advancement. That's where the advancement is. It's on the fringes. It's the people that are willing to push things farther that that when somebody tells you, oh, that can't be done, you're like, fuck you, I'm gonna do that. And then you (laughs) find a way to do that. And push it out. So, that's what that's what drives me. And then I get inspired by that because I say, "Oh, this like this fucker has these kitty poles that he screwed together, <laughs> flipped over, and cut all in the top." And I, I was like, "Holy shit, that's a badass system! It was yeah. smart. It was cheap. It's effective. <laughs> it, it, it has it goes like through all my. It takes off all my boxes. Right? I mean, can this be done at a at a at a during a during a day run to Home Depot and maybe to a pool store, you know, and I was like going through all that. And I was like this I mean when I yeah. saw that I remember thinking, okay, feels like super smart because <laughs> anybody can go and buy a pre-built thing and plug it in the wall. But guys that take that shit and fucking find new ways to mm. to make it work. And the same thing with you. When I saw that you you had that badass Velodice cage, right? You still have that, yeah. right? Yeah. I idea, saw that yeah. thing and I was like, holy, cuz I was working with those for a while. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh my God, that's, I, that's it. I quit. I'm just going to sell mine off now because I can't even, I, I just can't. And I thought about though, trying to do what you did, but outside here, but then it, it, I just got sidetracked with too many things. And, and, uh, it, it, and, and I was tired of getting bit in the face, to be honest by those <laughs> <laughs> um but uh but yeah i mean that that's like inspiring shit right because almost nobody does that like almost all the people that have them keep them either similar to the way i was keeping them right they they just kind of have like a standard snake setup i mean mine was outdoors but it was still pretty bare bones and um so that's the kind of sh- shit that you know you know like fucking jason hood right he lives not far from me he comes over here every once in a while him and me will sit on my back porch and just talk shit about all this stuff right and he <laughs> he's another one he's always looking for ways to like you know he's always stressing over you know oh this didn't go this year and maybe i did this wrong and so he's always thinking about stuff and how to make it better and him and i we talked for an hour on the phone the other day over a stuff because he's like oh man they're not doing what i thought but, you know, when I was like, but when he told me what he's was doing was better than what I was doing. So I
1: was like, I think you should just keep doing what you were doing. So Jason's you know, notorious he, for that. You know, he's always like, oh, I'm having a terrible year. And I'm like, what are you talking about, man? Yeah. <laughs> he's got a high
2: standards. I know. He does. He does. I love that True. dude. Yeah, and, dude. uh, he, uh. But yeah, I mean, and there's a whole bunch of guys like that. I couldn't even begin to do them all justice, you know, guys mm-hmm. and girls out there that are doing stuff. So, um, you know, that's, that's what I want to, to say.
1: Huh? Piece around like the, the things coming in from the fringe. There's, this, there's a, there's a storyteller that I remember listening to once. Um, and he was talking about just like in, in, this is like a persistent thing in myth that like, like the genius emerges from the margins. Yeah, Like that, mm. that's where it comes from. You know, absolutely. And like that's it's fascinating. Th- that has something that has really stuck with me. Just in terms of just everything, like, like in terms of like who I'm listening to. You know, when they're when they're talking, it's like, like, where is this person positioned in in society? You know, and like maybe that's what mm. to say that they they have a different perspective, and there's value in that. Right. So I totally.
2: The perspective that. is a huge deal like that's yeah. probably one of the most important things and a lot of people have totally overlooked that.
0: That's mm-hmm. fascinating. You know, that's really interesting cuz now that you mention it, I can't think of anyone who is who I, I can think of right now that's like a pop like a like a figure of interest and in import who's doing something interesting that I'm interested in. They're all pretty controversial you know there's like there's a level of controversy to what they're doing they're always embroiled in something that's Mm -hmm. not you know that makes you you're never like quite perfectly on board with what they're up Mm -hmm. to it's very rare that i can point to someone who feels sort of entrenched in um like the canon of a particular industry where i'm like Mm -hmm. that dude that dude's got it all figured out it just doesn't happen that way you know um Mm -hmm. i also was super keen on something you said at the same time, uh, Ron, where you said people willing to take a risk. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's really interesting to me too, because, um, this is something from jujitsu and fighting, right. You know, there's this idea that you can have the most technical fighters in the world and you can have the most entertaining fights in the world. And there's a, there's a, there's a Venn diagram where they overlap at some point and, you know, maybe they're not always the same. Both are very, very interesting. Right. But there is an, you know, there's something in, in martial arts and in combat sports where we talk about like being willing to take a risk and go for something, just go for it because even if it doesn't pay off, yeah, you're going to learn something. There's going to be some entertainment out of it maybe. And sometimes I feel like, like virtuoso performance is a little bit like that. There's a, what makes virtuoso performance so interesting is the fact that this is someone who's mastered the fundamentals, who's being willing to deviate in any direction right. from that center line just enough to make it interesting and to pull it into a realm that's less comfortable, that's less known, less secure, what have you. Um, and that's what's interesting about everybody rad and her pediculture. I mean, shit. Like, yeah, it's it's all the most interesting people that I, at least that I can think of at the moment or we're t- are totally kooky and doing something mm-hmm. that is so different from all the rest you know or it, even if there's some similarities there's just something different about the ones that stand out um yeah well it's all about security man
2: humans are very security security oriented right i mean if you mm-hmm. look at the way we live our societies it's all we spend an enormous amount of time energy and money uh, on security at all levels mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. And there's security in numbers. So when you're part of the herd and you're just kind of sitting there, it's safe. Mm. You know, you can, you'll get, you'll, if you're happy with whatever, you know, scraps you get from being the best fed sheep in the pen, <laughs> then, then that's cool. You know, I mean, if that's what makes you happy, but if you're willing to go out there on the edge and look for the, the you know, the, the untouched, sweet grass that's growing on the edge where the wolves might rip your head off and kill you but you're willing to take <laughs> that risk you get rewarded for that as long as you don't get you know so there's there's risk though i mean you might get beheaded by a wolf yeah. but you also might have you also might get the you know the good stuff that's out there on the corner on the sides and, you know the fringes that nobody else has got the balls to go do
3: so it's kind of one
2: of those things you know you have to i don't i don't know i i, I A long time ago, I went through a period where I went and looked at like people that were like famous or or well known for specific things. Right. Like I looked at a a sushi guy who was like legendary (laughs) little old man in Japan that people would pay hundreds of dollars to just come in and have a single plate. It was by appointment only. And he was just this little dude living in this modest house. He was like a regular guy. He was totally very down to earth but people would come from all over the place just to have this guy make them a meal. And there was a lot of other people, you know, different punk bands and, 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 and just all kinds of stuff, but they all had one thing in common, right? They were, they were defiant as hell and they were willing to, to just step out of the, out of the line and, and try, try stuff. And so, you know, most of the time you fail when you do that, Mm -hmm. I failed way more than I've ever succeeded. And honestly, all the successes that I have don't amount to shit compared to the the failures that I have have had are the best things that ever happened to me. They don't feel like it when it's happening to you. When you look back at it, you're like, Holy shit. If that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have learned this. And then I wouldn't have been able to move on to this. So, I mean, I clearly I need to be punched in the face every once in a while to, uh, (laughs) to do stuff, you know, it's
0: like, no, nothing will keep you honest, like a good sock in the face, man. Right. I mean, let me no. tell you. Yeah. So,
2: so I mean that, and that comes down to it though. That's what happens when you go out on the fringe, but if you don't go out on the fringe, you'll never do anything beyond, I think most, I think everyone is capable of that. I mean, I think everyone is capable of doing great stuff, but so many people just, they squander what they could do because they're, they're, they're addicted to the security or they're scared. I see it all the time. I see lots of people that are super smart, you know, um, they, they absolutely have talents that they could do stuff with, but instead they're going to a shit job that they hate Mm -hmm. and they're just grinding away for, for some, you know, whatever, there's a variety of reasons. Um, (laughs) And if they maybe took a chance, you know, on themselves and bet on themselves, And and it's also the fear of failure, right? You can't be afraid to fail. Like you got to, that's one of the fortunate things. I think my parents did a good job of uh, one. They were pretty supportive about what I do. Like most of the naysaying shit that I got came from like outside sources. My parents were pretty much, you know, you do whatever you want. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, but my dad is like one of those guys that if he sees a, a puddle, he'll jump in it. And sometimes the puddle's 10 feet deep and he goes, <laughs> and my mom is super, super, uh, like, like very security oriented. So I kind of got both mm-hmm. from them. I grew up in a house where one was, they were, they was chaos. They were, they, my parents are, are definitely total polar, polar opposites. Mm-hmm. So I got to watch them both. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to do the dumb shit my dad does and I'm also not going to be like my mom and be too scared to do anything ever and, mm-hmm. and be security oriented. So it gave me a pretty, a, a pretty balanced outlook on life and, um, watching them and the stuff they went through and analyzing my childhood and and the stuff that, that we went through as a family. So mm-hmm. that, that, that's what I use to be able to do what, take the chances I use. And everybody's got, everyone has that ability. I mean, nobody's, I don't think any of us are special. We're just,
3: mm-hmm.
2: just, you know, and all the pit that, that was what I got anyway, where I was going with that is that was the, basically the, the, the understanding I got from looking at all those people that were doing amazing things. But when you look at them, you find out, they're just like everybody else. They're not, they're not special. They were just yeah. willing to fail. They were willing to, to go out there and play on the fringe and, you know, and, and, and there was a lot of, you know, defiance and fuck you I'll do it whether you say I can or not kind of thing so all that kind of went a went a, went a long way I learned a
0: lot from that that's 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 pretty brilliant man I like that quite a bit um so uh unless uh, there's any protest from from Roy uh it, you know because I, I, I want to make sure you got you feel like you get you get enough of uh time to ask. I want you to everybody to feel included in the conversation is what I'm going to say. anything I'm, else? Okay. So the,
1: I mean, oh, I mean, uh, given what Ron just said about defiance, I feel yeah. like I'm supposed to. Yeah. You like, have to now. Yeah. This, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now please I'm do. Try and just keep us going until, you know, 4.00 AM, but do it. Yeah. No, <laughs> no do it. this is great. This is great. This
0: is great. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, so last one, uh, kind of, this is something we want to, that Roy and I have, kind of decided is going to be like a podcast tradition if you will um we want to ask every person that comes on um the question why her pediculture like and take that as open-ended or as you know contracted as as, as you like why yeah like why yeah like why uh why do we do this what's 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 the point what's the value what what's what's What's, what benefit? what benefits are we getting out of this? Why, you know, why, so, what's so, the point of,
3: yeah.
1: so, so Ron, you've been doing this for, um, basically your whole life, pretty right? much. Yeah. So, yeah. so why, <laughs> <laughs> why would you That's, do this to yourself for right? this long? <laughs> so I'm telling, you, I'm <laughs> you, telling know, like, you, how, how has it remained compelling after, um, you know, all these years to continue to do this, this, uh, wild
3: thing.
0: Roy's the See, brains of the operation. Yeah, he, that I'm, was I'm, definitely a yeah. much better yeah. framed than yeah. fill your fire, and go, go,
2: go stand fine, in the yeah. fucking corner back there for a while. <laughs> Bye,
0: everyone. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, i have actually given that a lot of thought. I honestly don't have a fucking answer, man. <laughs> when I was a little kid, I grew up in Miami. My yard was full of lizards. I had this weird, uh, you know, just fascination probably the same thing that both of you have and and almost everybody that does this has that's Mm -hmm. hardcore about it anyway. Um, you know, that. and I, where I, and I was very fortunate where I grew up because I like, I lived in like inner city, like, you know, my neighborhood was the the kind of place where they have drive-bys and, and, and there was always like all kinds of shit going on, but Mm -hmm. even there. All the whole neighborhood was full of stuff. There was like there was corn snakes in the rundown crack houses. There was there was a, there was a true story. I used to I used to catch quite a few corn snakes in the rafters of some busted up crack houses. Yeah. Every once in a while somebody would come out running away with a pipe in hand. It was crazy, man. Oh man. Oh, man. <laughs> um That's God, crazy. I, could tell, I could tell you some stories about that. I witnessed the murder. I was oh, shot at three man. times by the time I was 16. I that that was a crazy upbringing, but holy shit! Yeah, that neighborhood was something
1: else, man. You've been asking um, all the wrong questions, Phil. Right.
2: <laughs> another day,
1: another but, day. Uh,
2: but yeah, so I mean, so when I was a little kid, I just used to, you know, it just kind of kept going. And then I would, um, like, when I was like in elementary school, I used to get home every day. And I would change my clothes. I went to Catholic school, so I had to wear this stupid <laughs> little outfit. But as soon as I got home, I would change, right? And I'd go out in my backyard where we had these two big garbage cans, these big metal garbage cans. And there was always tons of lizards hanging out there. So I would go out there and just hang out by the garbage cans, catching lizards. And that was literally what I did when I was like seven years old, eight years old.
3: Great.
2: And then my parents finally got tired of me just catching little lizards. And they took me to the pet store and let me pick out a iguana. And it turned out to be a Cuban and all <laughs> a night and all.
1: So I, that's
2: what I just <laughs> recently posted that photo of me as some little shit in my yeah. Catholic schoolboy uniform in my backyard. Um
1: <laughs> Love it. But
2: that, uh, that was, I was like really that, that just really pushed me. And then I just started reading all the books I could. Like I, I begged my mom to take me to the library every week. And and I, and I would just go to immediately to the, the animal section and, and check out, i checked out every book there like a million times. I actually stole some of the books in there in my library to this day. I have like giant <laughs> reptiles from when I was a, when I was a kid. Um, I just wasn't bringing that book back. I was like, ah, I'm keeping this one. But, uh, but, but um Yeah. So I don't know, man, it's just this thing. I don't even know how to describe it. It's just like, it's just in you and you can't, Mm -hmm. you know, you just know it's like, okay, that's fucking awesome. But I mean, it's like that with everything, you know, like people you're just, you have this thing where it comes from. I don't know. Is it radiated from, you know, is it, is it in your DNA passed on from another ancestor down the line? that was also a lizard freak, you know, I mean, Gets kicked yeah. like my family on my dad's side has a whole lot of farmers, and they essentially build yeah. systems and that you know yeah. for agri- yeah. so I have that, and but I suck at everything else. You know, I mean, I'm not gonna grow cows, so <laughs> so, so, Look, so there's still time. You could still right? grow cows, yeah, <laughs> but you but had those. I grown up in Maine where they are, <laughs> would I be a reptile guy? Maybe not. I may yeah. I may be a fucking cow yeah. farmer. God, thank God <laughs> I grew up in Maine, but um. But I've thought about that, you know, I mean, and when I look at my family, I'm like, oh, shit, that all of, all those fuckers on that side, they, they have cow, cal- they have cattle, they do that stuff. So, um, yeah, man, I, I don't know. I think it's just something in us. And then it's mm-hmm. stay compelling because there's just so much cool shit to do. Mm-hmm. Like it never ends. You can always as soon as I as soon as I think I'm. I've hit everything. Then I like, Oh man, I could go do this now, you know, and and take this in this direction. and Like even with established things, you could take ball pythons today and make your own shit and make your own space and separate yourself from the pack. Mm -hmm. If you're, if you're hardcore enough and willing to, again, play in the fringes, if you're willing to take some of these morphs that nobody's paying attention to, and then figure out which ones you can combo up, I think you can make like some amazing shit and be really well known Mm-hmm. And, and do great stuff with that, you know, and, and so if that's really what you're into. So even something that's as, that's as heavily mined as that, which that's, there's probably no other segment of herbiculture that's as heavily mined as the ball python thing.
3: Mm.
2: There's still lots of room for all sorts of things. And uh, that's what keeps me, you know, engaged in this is that there's always something cool to do, <laughs> new direction, pushing things a little farther. Like I said, man, fringes is where it's at. So if I can get something and then push it into the fringes, that's what I want to do.
0: Well, life, yeah. Life on the fringes, man. That's awesome. I think that's a, uh, a cool way to uh, wrap up the podcast recording. So let me, unless uh, you got any problems with that, Roy, is that okay? Because you, you, you are the brains of the operation as we've established now. All right, let me just um, stop. That's, that's good with me. All right, let me stop it real quick, hang on.